somebody hurt you, maybe yesterday, maybe a lifetime ago, and you can't forget it. You didn't deserve it, but it went deep enough to lodge in your memory, and it keeps hurting even now. You are not alone. We are all muddling our way through a world where even well-meaning people hurt each other. I mean, we invest in relationships only to open our souls to disloyalty and betrayal. And not every hurt sticks with us. There's some we can let slide, but others don't wash so easily. And we've all wished we could go back to a painful moment and cut it from our lives. And it seems that some folks are lucky. I mean, there are some people that I know that they just seem to have like a gracious gland somewhere secreting juices into their body, juices to help them forget, and they never hold grudges, and they never recall old hurts. But most of us find those pains from the past just keep rolling through our memory, and there's nothing we can do to stop the flow. A lady named Hannah Arndt, Jewish philosopher, shared her discovery The only power that can stop the relentless stream of painful memories is what she calls the faculty of forgiveness. Forgiveness. It's God's way. It's God's invention, actually, for coming to terms with a world in which, despite our best intentions, people are unfair with each other and they hurt each other deeply. Lots of great things that Jesus says and does, and many of them invite me, and really all of us, into a better way to do life in this world. And there are great sermons he preached and multitudes he healed, episodes and incidents all along the road with regular folk. And he revealed himself as the good shepherd, as the bread of life, the light of the world. And my soul longs for the guidance of the shepherd and the sustenance of the bread and the illumination of the light for faith's narrow road. And he comes and helps me in so many ways. But there are some things that Jesus asked which haunt me. Even as a believer, as, as someone who's honestly seeking Jesus, there are questions lingering out there. They, they follow me wherever I go. They're, they're just never far away. One day, Jesus was in Jerusalem by what they call the Sheep Gate. It's on the north side, leads out beyond the city walls to a pool surrounded by five covered porches. You know, big columns and a roof, five of them, sort of spread around there. They provide shade and place to gather, relief from the sun, and and sick people come there to the pool of Bethesda. 
on occasion, the waters stir. When that happens, the first one into the stirring water is healed from their ailments. So Jesus exits through the sheep gate and takes the short path leading to the pool of Bethesda. And there, among all the others, he finds a man who has been ill for 38 years, <laughs> lying there a long time. And this is the haunting question. Jesus asked, do you want to be made well? It seems like an easy answer. Certainly, I want to be made well. This man's been sick a long time, and each time the water stirs as he's making his way, someone steps in ahead of him. I mean, year after year and time after time, he tried again and again to get to the water, but failing each time. What does that do to a person? <laughs> and I just want to fix it, and so my solution is, you know, just wait at the water's edge. And just as soon as it stirs, starts stirring, you know, sort of roll in. <laughs> I don't know, maybe the man tried this for some time. Somehow people still got in before him. And after a period of time, perhaps he moved away from the edge and then further and further back until he made his peace with his illness. His life had reached an equilibrium. It's not great. It's not horrible either. And so, for what seems like an easy answer to us, Jesus may see the more that's going on here. Do you want to be made well? The altar has uh, been a place for me to do business with God. It's a space for me to express my devotion, to make a commitment. How to confess my sin um, is to ask for some help. One Sunday, just after Grace was born, I, I was a new dad. I mean, she's 24 years old now, and I had all these emotions just running through me, coursing. And I don't recall the pastor's sermon, but I felt this pull forward, and reluctantly I went, not knowing why. And knelt down and a friend or two gathered around me and soon a pastor came to pray with me and he asked, well, how can I pray for you? And I began in denial. I'm just not sure what God wants to do with my life and blah, blah, blah. And then a silence and tears. And I sobbed out. I am so angry with my father. I mean, here I am, a new dad. I am overwhelmed with such love and joy and hope, elation. Having this grace in my life is beyond anything I could imagine. And all of the love I feel in my soul, in my bones for this child. And my father gave all that up. He exchanged me, put me to the side cashed me in for a beer bottle rather than hold me and drink deep from the love of a newborn son he chose the cool crisp bottle and the clear refreshing taste of Budweiser and all of this just came out 
and I'm kneeling there and I'm exposed and crying and the pastor leans in, he's sorry to hear that. And he asks me another haunting question. He says, have you forgiven your father? I shook my head, I'm like, no. You have no idea what I've endured. Pastor counseled, you're gonna have to forgive him. And as he prayed, I sort of listened, but mostly I was just angry. What horrible advice to give someone who's just poured out such hurt and hate. But his question haunted me. Have you forgiven? Jesus' question haunts me. Do you want to be made well? book forgive and forget healing the hurts we don't deserve uh, Lewis Smead he, he writes um, the magic eyes a little fable I share it with you in the village of Fakin in innermost Friesland there lived a long thin baker named Falk a righteous man with a long thin chin and a long thin nose Falk was so upright that he seemed to spray righteousness from his thin lips over everyone who came near him, so the people of Fagin preferred to stay away. Falk's wife, Hilda, well, was short and round, and her arms were round, and her bosom was round, and her rump was round. And Hilda did not keep people at bay with righteousness. I mean, her soft roundness seemed to invite them instead to come close to her in order to share the warm cheer of her open heart. Hilda respected her righteous husband and loved him too as much as he allowed her. But her heart ached for something more from him than just his worthy righteousness. And there, in the bed of her need, lay the seed of sadness. One morning, having worked since dawn to knead his dough for the ovens, Falk came home and found a stranger in his bedroom lying on Hilda's round bosom. Hilda's adultery soon became the talk of the tavern and the scandal of the faking congregation. And everyone assumed that Falk would cast Hilda out of his house, so righteous was he. But he surprised everyone by keeping Hilda as his wife, saying he forgave her as the good book said he should. In his heart of hearts, however, Falk could not forgive Hilda for bringing such shame to his name. Whenever he thought about her, his feelings toward her were angry and hard. He despised her after she were a common whore. When it came right down to it, he hated her for betraying him after he had been so good and faithful a husband to her. He only pretended to forgive Hilda so that he could punish her with his righteous mercy. But Falk's fakery did not sit well in heaven. 
So, each time that Falk would feel his secret hate toward Hilda, an angel came to him and dropped a small pebble, hardly the size of a shirt button, into Falk's heart. Each time a pebble dropped, Falk would feel a stab of pain like the pain he felt the moment he came on Hilda, feeding her hungry heart for, from a stranger's larder. Thus he hated her the more. His hate brought him pain, and his pain made him hate. The pebbles multiplied, and Falk's heart grew very heavy with the weight of them, so heavy that the top of his body, half of his body, is actually bent over so far that he had to strain his neck upward just in order to see straight ahead. Weary and hurt, Falk began to wish he were dead. The angel who dropped the pebbles into his heart came to Falk one night and told him how he could be healed of his hurt. There's only one remedy, he said, only one for the hurt of a wounded heart. Falk would need the miracle of the magic eyes. He would need eyes that could look back to the beginning of his hurt and see Hilda, not as a wife who betrayed him, but as a weak woman who needed him. Only a new way of looking at things through the magic eyes could heal the hurt flowing from the wounds of yesterday. Falk protested. Nothing can change the past, he said. Hilda is guilty, a fact that not even an angel can change. Yes, poor hurting man, you're right, the angel said. You cannot change the past. You can only heal the hurt that comes to you from the past, and you can heal it only with the vision of the magic eyes. How can I get your magic eyes? pouted Falk. Only ask, desiring as you ask, and they will be given you. And each time you see Hilda through your new eyes, one pebble will be lifted from your aching heart. Falk could not ask at once. He had grown to love his hatred, but the pain of his heart finally drove him to want and to ask for the magic eyes that the angel had promised. So he asked, and the angel gave. Soon Hilda began to change in front of Falk's eyes, wonderfully and mysteriously. He began to see her as a needy woman who loved him instead of a wicked woman who betrayed him. <laughs> you know, the angel kept his promise. He lifted the pebbles from Falk's heart one by one, and it took a long time to take them all away. I mean, Falk gradually felt his heart grow lighter, and he began to walk straight again, and somehow, you know, his nose and his chin, they just seemed less thin and sharp than before. He invited Hilda to come into his heart again, and she came, and together they began again a journey into their second season of humble joy.
So pull your mind away from the person who needs to be forgiven. Don't yet ask what happens to the forgiven wrongdoer. Look only at the wounded forgiver. Think only of Falk and his magic eyes. Never mind Hilda for the moment. Seeing with magic eyes brings us new insight. We forgive people. As we do that, we gradually come to see the deeper truth about them. A truth our hate has blinded us to. A truth we can see only when we separate them from what they did to us. And I'm not talking about playing games. This is not make-believe. But we see the truth again. The truth about those who hurt us is that they're weak, needy, infallible human beings. The, the, the truth is that they were fallible people before they hurt us, and they are fallible people after they hurt us. The truth is that they're weak and needy before they hurt us, and they're weak and needy after they hurt us. They needed help, support, comfort before they did us wrong, they still need it. The truth is that they are not only the people who hurt us. This is not the deepest truth about them. Now, our hate wants to cloak them top to bottom only in rags of their rotten deeds, but the magic eyes of forgiveness looks beneath those tattered rags and we see the deeper truth of their fallen humanity. And as the magic eyes bring new insight, these magic eyes help us find new feelings toward them as well. When we talk of feeling, the word irrelevance may help. <laughs> when you forgive me, the wrong I did to you becomes irrelevant to how you feel about me now. It doesn't matter, doesn't count, has no bearing on your attitude toward me. I mean, the person you hated until now. The pain I once caused you there has no connection with how you feel toward me here. And I know that you can't pry the wrongdoer loose from the wrong, but we can release the person within our memory of the wrong. And if we can peel away the wrong within our forgiver's memory, we can see the person who really lies beneath the cloak of wrongdoing and forgiving, asking for magic eyes is a new vision, a new feeling. It is a gift that is given to the person who forgives. This idea of irrelevance is the Bible's way to describe how God forgives. 
In ancient times, the Day of Atonement was something done once a year. Uh, to begin, the, the priest sacrificed a young bull as a sin offering for himself and his house. He brought two goats to the entrance. They cast lots. As they rolled the dice, and, and the goat chosen by Lot was offered to the Lord as a sin offering for the people. And after all that is done, inside the sanctuary, the priest came out, placed his hands on the head of the live goat, and confesses over it all the sins of the people, all their transgressions, all the iniquities were spoken over the head of this goat. In essence, transferring those sins. I mean, taking them away from the people and then placing them on the head of the goat. And then they send it out into the wilderness. And the goat carried all their iniquity into a barren land. And all the sin that once separated the people from God is now irrelevant to how God sees and feels about the people now. Scapegoat. Another biblical imagery is a washed face. <laughs> the Bible speaks in a couple different parts of beautiful um, imagery of a great banquet. There's coming a day when there's going to be a, a feast of rich food, a, a feast of well-aged wine, the richest affairs, and the cloud casting darkness over the people, the sheet of death that separates and spread over the nations, it will be swallowed up forever. And the Lord will wipe away the tears from our face. I mean, it's kind of like we've been outside playing in the dirt all day long and we've just come home tired and hungry and filthy. And our father, he takes the sleeve of his robe and he dips it and he washes the grime from our face and streaks of tears running through the, the, the dirty faces. I mean, he's just tenderly wiping them away. And, you know, it's like all we've experienced throughout the day, I mean, all that getting dirty and grimy, it's now irrelevant to what he sees in our eyes as he holds our cheeks, clearing, cleaning away the dust of the past. A scapegoat, a clean face. This opens for us the reality of what God does in his own mind when he forgives us. He changes his memory. What we once did is irrelevant to how he feels about us now. Do you want to be made well? Smead ends his book with a postlude. I share a portion of it with you.
When we forgive, we reverse the flow of seemingly irreversible history. We reverse the flow of pain that began in the past when someone hurt us. A flow that filters into our present to wound our memory and poison our future. Forgiveness is utterly unpredictable. I mean, no one can suspect. In the, in the nature of things, in the natural cause and effect of things in this world, that anyone should ever forgive? I mean, it's a miracle that hardly anyone notices. We do it alone, maybe some people help us, but when we do it, we're actually performing this miracle in the private place of our inner self. We're doing this silently, and there's no one who can record our miracle on tape. We do it invisibly. No one recorded on our miracle on film, and we do it freely. No one can ever trick us into forgiving someone. Forgiveness is outrageous. When we do it, we commit an outrage. An outrage against the strict morality that will not rest with anything short of an even score. And forgiveness is creative. When we forgive, we come as close as any human being can to the essentially divine act of creation. For we create a, a new beginning out of a past that never had a right to exist in the first place. We create healing for the future by changing a past that had no possibility in it for anything but sickness and death. And when we forgive, we ride the quest of love's cosmic wave and we walk in stride with God. And I pray that you will ride the crest of love's cosmic wave and that you will walk in stride with God. And when asked the haunting question, have you forgiven? Do you want to be made well? You can authentically affirm, yes, yes I do.